Oh, no, I'd be pissed off if I said I had to get up at 7.30 and someone went, at least you have another day. That's way worse, yeah. (laughs) Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way that pop culture has treated women in a given week. It's almost always terribly. This week, we've got Teo Bugby. Hi, Teo. Hello. And we're here along with Aaron Dark. Hi, Aaron. Hi. So Aaron stars in Amazon's new and inexplicably recently canceled <laughs> series, Good Girls Revolt. So we're going to talk to Aaron about what the hell happened there. And then later, the three of us will talk about our favorite memories of the dearly departed Carrie Fisher and Demi Reynolds. And then we'll answer a hilarious lady problem from an anonymous lady in my life. Anonymous to us, not anonymous. Not anonymous, anonymous to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Erin, do you want to tell us a little bit about, like, for people who may not have seen the show, what the show was about and your yeah. role? Um, well, the show is, it's inspired by the, a book called Good Girls Revolt, which um, is based on the actual lawsuit that the women of Newsweek filed for sexual discrimination in 1970 because they were allowed to be fact checkers and rese- researchers, but not reporters. So they were doing as much of the work and getting none of the credit or the paychecks. <laughs> um, and so our show is inspired by that. And it's about a group of researchers at a, uh, you know, highly fictionalized News of the Week magazine. I love that um, they called it news of the week. <laughs> they were like, too. fuck it. Yeah, they were like, fuck it. We're Go not really. The first idea. <laughs> yeah. What if I just took an oven right. there? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's about it's about this group of women researchers who sort of come together and file a sexual discrimination lawsuit for equal rights in the workplace. Um, and it's also about like their lives and sort of the ways that uh, society and the patriarchy in general affect all of the areas of their lives in the 1970s. Yeah. And how did you how did you get the part? What was the audition process like? Um, I I auditioned, I guess three different times. But I actually auditioned all. First, I auditioned for Cindy, which is the role I play, and then I auditioned for Jane, which is the role Anna Camp plays. And I remember going in for it and being like, "I'm never gonna book this," <laughs> um, which I didn't. And they cast Anna Camp, and she's amazing. And then they called <laughs> it's me a back very in for Anna Cindy. Camp, Anna Camp role. Yeah, I mean, I think she has like I think Anna has such a beautiful way of bringing a humanity to those like very by the books, totally, you know, sort of women in a way that like I looked at that character and I was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> so I was very happy that they called me back in for Cindy um, and then I booked the job which I'm still sort of surprised about but very happy <laughs> it was though that I feel like that part was made for you you're so good in it oh thank you yeah, thank you perfect. I just I love her like I love that character yeah. what I, was most appealing for you about the character um I think it was you know it was this I think to me, like, she reminded me of, like, a version of who I could have been if I hadn't grown up in a world where everyone told me that I could be whatever I wanted to be. Mm. You know, I, like, it's—I just see this woman in her who's, like, this strong and capable and intelligent woman who's just trying to get out, but no one has ever told her that it's okay for her to want things or be happy. Right. Um, And so I just think I, like, went in with this just immense, like, compassion for her, which sort of just made me fall in love with her. And she's also, like, a real oddball. (laughs) And I feel like it's sort of unusual that someone on TV as a woman lets you be an oddball and a little bit weird but also have humanity and heart and, like, serious storylines. Like, so rarely 
as an actress do I feel like I get to do those things? Yeah, and also I, I thought it was so interesting how she was allowed, like, as a character to enjoy sex. Yeah. Which is also seems, like, pretty rare unless she that's, like, the only thing about that character. Yeah, right. absolutely. Like and she, like, grows into it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she sort of discovers, she discovers pleasure. Mm-hmm. Like, I was so happy when I read the script where she has a masturbation scene. I was just like, yes. <laughs> like, and I also, like, it was the only scene in, like, it's, it was actually in, in my contract that I wasn't supposed to do, like, topless nudity. Like, no nipples, no boobs. And uh-huh. we got to do that scene. And I was like, um, I said, I was like, I, I, I want to do nipples. I was like, this is a scene about a, a woman being by herself and being comfortable with herself and owning her body and her own pleasure. And if there's ever a time for fucking tits on screen, I think this is it. <laughs> yeah, now's the time. And there's also that scene where you get, like, kissed on the vagina. Yeah, the va- <laughs> which was known as the vagina kiss scene yeah. on set. Yeah. <laughs> which is, like, I was really surprised to see that. I was like, this is great. I've never really seen yeah. anything like that. I mean, it was also funny watching the show. I watched the show with my boyfriend and that scene finished and he was like, it's a really interesting scene because it actually, like, the vagina kiss does this sort of beautiful thing for this character. But watching it in 2016, it's also kind of maybe sexual harassment. (laughs) Totally. I mean, the whole show is, like, every relationship on the show is sexual harassment. Yeah. It's like, (laughs) like, not a single one. Yeah. Yeah. My boyfriend said the same. He was like, I'm, like, a little, having a little trouble rooting for some of these relationships because the sexual politics are so imbalanced. Yeah. Right. Did you guys talk about that, like, on set? I mean, we did talk. I think it was impossible not to talk about that um, because they are, like, all of the relationships are so complicated because that's the thing is, like, almost all of them also are dealing with a a work relationship Mm -hmm. because especially, like, reading the book that the show was based on, like, those people were doing it all the time. <laughs> yeah, like, I like that the closet that just has a lock on it for yeah. people to go fucking. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's what, like, great. The, yeah, it definitely, like, because I remember when I first read the script, I was like, okay, maybe we're over-dramatizing the sex that was happening at the office and then I read the book and I was like, apparently not. <laughs> apparently that's just what was happening. It was 1970. Free love for all. <laughs> right. Um, but, but that's the thing, because these relationships are so imbued, like, in work and the personal life, like, Cindy obviously has a relationship outside of work with her husband, but it's shittier, yeah. actually, you know, than some of the – it just wasn't – you know, I guess it's the thing is, you know, it really made me think about, like, how, you know, I'm in a relationship where my significant other is super supportive of my career and working, and I don't really know if that was a thing. Well, it's also – it's interesting to think about the way that different social structures function. You know what I mean? Like, in that era – when you are meeting someone in a workplace, that's actually, like, a different version of yourself than what you might be able to meet someone in just, like, a dating setting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what the expectations are for what your role is going to be is different. Yeah. And half um, the expectations of women at work were to go there to meet a husband. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, right. you have, like, Anna Camp's character. Like, her dad's trying to get her a different job so she'll meet better men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. like— it's well, they in- have, like, lots of, like, finishing school comments, too, even from the other women. Where yeah. it's like, well, what do you expect to happen and to come out of this situation? Like, yeah. are you going to leave the struggle for, like, being a housewife in a year? Yeah. It seems like, the two, like, from what I've read, you guys were all, like, super close. It was a very woman-centric set. Obviously, yeah. it was created by women, written by women. It was focusing mostly on female characters. And like, women was that- directors, yeah, too, which yeah. is important. Yeah. Do you—was that— unique for you? Did that feel different than other projects that you've done? Yes. Um, <laughs> no, it did. I mean, it, it did. It, it, it did. There was like, um, there was, 
a comfort level in it, I think, especially in also telling stories about women and having this amazing support network off screen as well. Like you knew that you could actually talk to your writers and your show creators about things and the way you felt about them. Um, like I, you know, I the they were amazing with me having conversations with them about the character and where it was going. And because I had a lot of struggle struggles as like 2016, Aaron, like sometimes the things that would happen to Cindy, I would just be like, does this have to happen? <laughs> like, can't she just tell him to fuck off? Right. Like, um, but, you know, and it was also just, I think it was really inspiring. I've been, you know, doing various film and TV things for probably about five years now. And sometimes you'll get lucky and have a woman director or like I've worked with one other female DP. And this was, you know, there was one point where we were doing a rehearsal and I looked around and every, it was just just women in the room. The actors, the director, the writer, the script supervisor, the DP, the first AD, like it just. And so you had this incredibly comfortable space where you could actually say things like, hey, sorry if I'm crabby today. I have horrible menstrual cramps. Mm-hmm. And everyone was just like, I get that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when did you. So now for the, the yeah. shitty part. Yeah. <laughs> when did you find out that it was canceled? Like, how did you find out? Um, the show creator, Dana Calvo, called me the night before the news leaked, um, which was the night that they heard. Um, and, yeah, she told me the shitty, shitty news. So How did she, like, explain it to you? Um, well, I'll be honest. Some of it's off the record. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> of course. Um, I mean, basically the understanding that I got was that uh, the head of Amazon just didn't like the show. Um, I also strongly got the impression from several conversations with people and what I think has been released in the media by them since then that he also didn't watch it. Oh, right. It's hard to like something. When yeah, you watch I it. know. It's so it's weird. weird, right? How if you've never <laughs> seen something, it's hard to be a big fan. Yeah, absolutely. More lady problems after this break. One of the things we were talking about, too, like, because we read that there was, like, an Atlantic piece about the show and about its cancellation and about this exact situation and sort of the negligence on the part of the Amazon video team to sort of support the show. Um, And one of the things that they talked about in that article or that they didn't talk about in that article that I thought was interesting is that Amazon has, like, a roster of programming. You know what I mean? Like, why this show... Why would the show not connect with their team as opposed to something like Transparent or right? Like, like why, why, why like is why, Transparent? Yeah, okay, like it's just strange is- in that. Like, are they? What do they expect from a, a women centric show? Right. Like that, it has like a women audience. It should, and it was mostly women. It was right? like a po- like yeah, it had I mean, a positive reaction from its demographic, seemingly. But yet, yeah, some things get picked up and some don't. I mean, I have. I have theories. You know, obviously, like, nobody knows. Nobody's inside their head. I sort of have a theory, and this is personal, and my publicist will probably yell at me for talking (laughs) about it. But I sort of have a theory that actually um, for the average, like, 45-year-old white dude, uh, transgender people are less threatening than strong women. Huh. 
um, that, like, a show about someone who is transgendered is something they can watch and be like, cool, I never deal with that in life, whatever, whoever likes that, great. But if you are a white, middle-aged male executive at a company and you're watching a show or, you know, hearing from your other employees about a show, you know, about women fighting for equality and fighting for power in the workplace, that could be a a more threatening thing. That's super interesting. I mean, it's like I said, it's just a theory because I I sort of have no rational explanation for why we were picked up again Um, and why shows like Transparent are supported, why shows like... Hand of God yeah. and Red Oaks got a second <laughs> season and we didn't. I and can't. fucking Woody Allen got a yeah. series. Yeah, I sort of like, I'm, I've am i sort of been in this place where like I don't know exactly what happened, but it doesn't really seem to make any sense to me from a business or rational side unless you add a little mix of sexism into the equation, whether of that's course. conscious or subconscious. It really feels like that had to have been a factor. Yeah, and it's important to note, too, this has been reported in multiple outlets, that Amazon doesn't release its data, but an independent research firm looked into it and said that it was one of the strongest debut shows that Amazon has ever had. And there's been varying reports on whether or not that's accurate, and Amazon has kind of, like, denied it a little bit. But it seems, I mean, even just from the online buzz of the show, when I was, I mean, I interviewed Anna right when it came out, and there were all these positive reviews. It just, it, it felt like something that should, should have been rooted, like it was shocking to the internet, to the press, to you yeah. guys when it was canceled. I mean, I also think it's, you know, like we obviously will probably never know what the ratings actually were because Amazon did come out and be like, those are wrong, but <laughs> offered no actual facts right. as to what the real numbers I'm might sure be. I'm sure that makes like contract negotiations um, really fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that's the thing. Sony, who produced the show, they were the one who commissioned the report because Amazon doesn't even tell them mm-hmm. what right. the ratings are. Um, but, I, but the other thing that was crazy to me was that we got – we got axed essentially after 35 days on a streaming service, which is almost unheard of because uh, the whole point of a streaming service is for people to binge watch it and word of mouth to spread and to right. build an audience. Right. So, like, the fact that it happened after, like, 35 days was just, like, you can't even say that the ratings weren't there because you haven't given them time to be. Right. Meanwhile, there's a second season of Bosch. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Bosch I think Bosch is there. on like season four. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we all need to know what's going on with Bosch. Yeah. I don't know anything about that show. I know it's a detective. But I'm sure it sucks. Um, <laughs> so also like no, I, there were also multiple reports that there were no women involved in the decision making like in that room about no. canceling the show, which is just like a haunting I mean, as, as much as I understand Roy Price, the head of Amazon, it was mostly his sole decision. Um, there's another guy who runs comedy and drama at Amazon whose name I don't remember. Roy Price is such a name for a man who's going to cancel all female programs. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It really is. Um, but as far as I understand, like, he – it was – he's sort of the god of Amazon Studios and it was his his decision – it's just extremely ironic that, like, a group of men were like, we're going to cancel this show about women trying to have, like, it was better a collective representation. Identity. Yeah. Yeah. It was so meta. Mm-hmm. I can't even, like... <laughs> and that is, I think, the thing, like, as, you know, as an actress who's now unemployed again, or probably, unless someone else picks up the show, like, I was upset for that reason. I was upset because I love playing Cindy, but mostly, especially because it, it was, like, three weeks after the election when it happened, like, it mostly just felt like a slap in the face right. as a woman. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, even as a viewer, just reading, I was, I couldn't believe it because 
of the timing, because of the irony. It just felt like a sick sort of twisted joke. It's also very relevant in terms of just like the media sphere right now. You know, like increasingly there are unionized workplaces within digital media or media in general. You know, like that fusion situation happened. But Mm -hmm. it's also like... We had a conversation a few months ago with a woman who ran a lesbian publication that was also axed by all male executives, you know. After Ellen, like, yeah. Yeah, after Ellen. You know, there's like a sense that you're vulnerable as a as a business model if you're catering to the needs of women. And I just don't know where that comes from. Well, like comes why from, it comes from like the entire top tier being run by men. Right. Like I remember on the press tour for the show, someone was like, well, how do you think, you know, they'll fix like the gender problem in the industry? And I was like, I more female executives. Like, <laughs> because it is like you go, you know, you look at the top of almost everything. You know, the exception being uh, we're produced by Sony TriStar and Susan Patmore Gibbs, who or Suzanne Patmore Gibbs, who heads it, has been, you know, like so supportive of the mm-hmm. show. And it is just like watching the difference between the do the two. It's like, oh, that's so crazy. If you have a woman producing <laughs> things about women, they understand it. <laughs> like Imagine. Imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Do you are you surprised by the public response? So there's there's been a Save Good Girls Revolt hashtag going on for like a month now, and people are really rallying to sort of find another place for the show. I'm not surprised by it. I'm not because I think there is like, I think, you know, for me just as a human being, there is a need for a show like this. Mm -hmm. Like a show that is not just about like the history of women, which I think is something that is really easy to forget having grown up, you know, when I did, when sort of that second wave feminism had kind of done its job enough that I grew up with all of these opportunities. Um, But I also just think like, I'm feeling really effing down after the election and watching something about the power of women and the power of women coming together and fighting for equality. Like, there are lots of shows on the air right now about, like, with strong female leads, and that's amazing, but this was the only show that was directly about women's women's rights and women fighting for equality. And I Mm -hmm. think we are going back into another period where a lot of us are aware that we're going to be doing that again. And it was really lovely as a viewer to have something that was inspirational in that way. So Even it doesn't, like as a model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like if, you know, whether or not our show gets another home, I hope that it inspires more shows like it. Have you heard of any news on that front? Not really. I mean, I've heard rumors, but I also heard rumors that we were getting picked up again by Amazon. Right, so right. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> well, we hope that it that it works out. Thanks. Me too. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. So last week we lost um, two of our most beloved cultural icons, Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, a day apart. Teo, I know you have a lot of a lot of feelings about this. I did not stop crying about this until the new year. <laughs> My 2016 ended with just like a lot of tears about Carrie and Debbie. I don't know. I, I was really surprised by how affecting I thought the whole situation was. Um, and I think part of what's so sad about it is sort of what you were talking about a little bit earlier on how it's difficult to find narratives about women sometimes. And these are two, like, icons of 
certainly of like women in Hollywood and being outspoken about politics, being outspoken about women's roles and ageism, but also just having a public narrative of a relationship between a mother and daughter feels so rare Mm -hmm. that for them to end in such a, I don't know, abrupt and tragic way where, you know, a mother losing her daughter and then dying herself a day later it was just very very affecting and I felt like a deep a deep sense of loss and also a deep sense of gratefulness to have witnessed that kind of love between two people Mm -hmm. and especially between two women especially between a mother and a daughter I don't know I I just think it's like a one of those when life is as surprising as art you know what I mean and things seem to come together in a way that's upsetting and real and also um larger than life and mm-hmm. i don't know what a what a way to lose two people who were themselves larger than life and it, and yeah. we talked about this too like the fact that they were willing to share this relationship via their art was yeah. so rare right and yeah. they were so like i mean there's this documentary coming out next week just just about their relationship i can't wait to see it i know i will be it's on wreck. hbo on saturday <laughs> <I know. laughs> and like just the fact that they were both these outspoken feminists and I, I always admired Carrie so much. I mean, obviously as an actress, but really as a writer. She's yeah. a, such a fantastic She's writer. She's so amazing. And when she talks, she talks like a writer. Like everything yeah, that come, came out of her mouth. She has such a clear voice. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I just, I don't know. And she was so unapologetic about like, she was. She would always quote, I read a bunch of quotes. I can't remember the exact quote, but something about how like she was always formulating her thoughts as they were coming out of her mouth. Mm-hmm. And that's even more impressive. That yeah. she was so like, witty and articulate and as someone who's like often gets in trouble for like just saying shit like <laughs> without thinking about it like right, I admired sharer. her so much yeah. right like I'm such an oversharer and it made me feel okay like she was never like sorry for it well that yeah, was no she was I'm mean, that's the thing like she just had a pair of amazing balls mm-hmm. yeah you know like she was so unapologetic and honest and like I felt like as as an actor like you know, especially once I knew I wanted to be an actor, she was one of those people I looked up to to someone who had, like, been through the shit of Hollywood and knew the shit of Hollywood and just was, like, had gotten to a point where she was comfortable being herself and mm-hmm. didn't give a crap mm-hmm. what anyone else thought. And there was something, like, so refreshing and inspiring about that. I also think, I mean, it's very moving, um, her difficulty with bipolar disorder and sort of how willing she was to be a public spokesperson for that, especially to, you know, she would have like a public episode and having to deal with that in real time and have people ask her about it. And it wasn't a secret. She was somebody who was very, very open about the fact that, you know, people's minds work in different ways. And this is how mine does. And so this is just part of who I am. And I deal with that. And I'm trying to be stable for my daughter. I'm I've worked I've worked on myself. You know, mm-hmm. there's something really beautiful about that too, about being open about things that are vulnerable, that make you vulnerable. And that was like a real gift on on Carrie's part. And I think within Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher's relationship, like the volatility of that relationship and how open they were with how vulnerable that is too was just like a real I don't know a real it was so like special. soothing you're like okay yeah. like everyone's kind of fucked up <laughs> yeah. everyone has a difficult relationship right. with their mother exactly. yeah. I mom. love them um oh, yeah actually I have a really nice mom sorry mom <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean what were you like what's what was your favorite Aaron what was your favorite like Carrie or Debbie moment oh man it's so hard I mean for Debbie like, I feel like it has to be singing in the rain 
for me. I, like, I am not a musical person. I rarely love them, but that film and her in that film She's is so, so good. infectious. And, you know, playing, like, the female lead against these two incredibly charismatic, strong men and not just holding her own but, like, sort of just taking it for herself. Mm -hmm. Totally. You know, like, you remember Debbie Reynolds in that film. It's morning. Yes. And what a lovely morning. Good morning. Good morning. And also that they're, like, two of the most acclaimed dancers in all of cinema and that she didn't dance before that movie like she had never tap danced I did not know that that is amazing it's amazing it's so stressful to think about I mean she (laughs) she would talk about how she like in rehearsals Gene Kelly would make her dance until her feet were bleeding but she was like here to do it like that's that's a tough lady that is amazing yeah we'll be back with more lady problems after this ad With Carrie, it's like my mind obviously goes to Princess Leia first. Like I was raised on Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Princess Leia is was also just like one of the first like badass women I remember seeing yeah, in like movies a young growing person. up. Yeah. yeah, that was like she was a leader and she was powerful and she took no shit. I don't know who you are or where you came from. But from now on, you do as I tell you. Okay. Yeah, she was wasn't an, cute. Like, yeah, I really she wasn't appre- cute. appreciated that you about her. bought her as the leader of a resistance. Yeah. You know? Um, but honestly, like, the Carrie Fisher performance that I think is the most indelible for me is when Harry met Sally. Mm-hmm. This is Rachel's too. Yeah, that was mine too. <laughs> too. Especially the wagon wheel coffee table. Yes. Oh, it's so amazing. Oh, this is kind of a... We're sitting like, in front oh, of a wagon wheel. Oh, we are kind of sitting at a wagon wheel. Like a wagon <laughs> wheel. I want you to know that I will never want that wagon wheel coffee table. Yeah, I was saying, like, I talked, my boyfriend and I referenced that all the time. Like, he when he moved in, he had all this, like, giant, horrific furniture. And I, like, <laughs> I was like, this is like, in When Harry Met Sally. I'm like, you remember that scene? Like, it was just like, this, right, it's like a touch point. Yeah. And there's also just something to, amazing to me about, like, like the character that Carrie, that Carrie played in that film. You know, the first half of the film, like, he's never going to leave her. He's never going to leave her. <laughs> and I feel like that character could have fallen into some actual, like, horrible cliche of a woman. Right. But instead, you just, like, loved her and then are so happy when you see her find happiness but still is that woman. Right. <laughs> really, Marie? Well, how else do you think you do it? I've got the perfect guy. I don't happen to find him attractive, but you might. She doesn't have a problem with chins. Like, yeah, I just, I do think, like, when I when I say Carrie Fisher in my head, it's when Harry met Sally. Absolutely. Right, like, I think another actress playing that w- would have maybe, like, devolved into more of a stereotype because yeah. there, there was that written in there a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, like, I'm sure if you just read the script yeah. for that role, you'd be like, Ugh. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. She could be shrill. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. She's, she does this amazing job of, like, subverting every single line and you just, like, adore her. And you're yeah. Like, how how is this man not leaving his wife? Be like, my yeah, friend. you're like, how could anyone not <laughs> right. leave their wife for you? <laughs> I'm leaving my wife for you. Yeah. Like, this is fucked up. Yeah. What about you, Teo? I mean, for me, I'm such a postcards from the edge person. She's not in that film. It's not a performance, no but she she wrote it, and it's based on her book. And in just in every way, feels like 
the total embodiment of the internal life of Carrie Fisher. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you can't, I know you're watching other people, but it's just like everyone is speaking so specifically in her voice and in what her cadences are and how she like thinks of conversation. Businessmen, they have no knowledge of creative personalities. Actors are not treated well. And actresses are treated like, well, I hate to use the word, but shit. And it's just like such an exciting way to meet someone's mind. You know what I mean? And it's such a vulnerable movie, too. Like that whole it's dealing with like addiction and dealing with the process of coming out of addiction and all of the walls are falling away all the time. And the facade of Hollywood, you know, just things that Carrie Fisher so specifically understood. It's I don't know. I love seeing it. I love done how so well on screen. I love how Meryl and Shirley like talk over each other. Yeah, and it's it's like this beautiful like sort of music. Like they don't ever act. You can hear both of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I just picture Carrie and Debbie doing that, and I'm like, I love this so much. <laughs> I feel like the sound editor had the worst time on that film. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Did you, Aaron? Did you like know? Did you ever get a chance to like brush? brush with them in public or oh like god you know, no no i would have died <laughs> i mean that's the thing is like I've, it's like a weird thing i feel like i've been around enough now that i've like met enough famous people that i consider myself like pretty chill mm-hmm. generally but it's always like a random one that you will meet where you just like <laughs> lose your shit and i think i would have lost my shit <laughs> like with either of them if if it had been both of them together i probably would like someone would be like, i would Where's have freaked out yeah. like oh she's like in the corner in the fetal position right. <laughs> like, i'm under the table yeah <laughs> And Taylor, you were saying you had a crush on Debbie Reynolds as a child. Well, yeah, she was such a ham, and I was really shy when I was little, and so I just, I love, like, in a baby way, you know what right. I mean? She was just, like, so sparkly. I loved her. So sparkly. Oh. I'm going to go home and watch Singing. I'm going to cry. I know. <laughs> I'm really proud Excuse of you for not I go crying. Cry. <laughs> I know. I was saying to Rachel earlier, I didn't think I was going to get through this pod- You're podcast so strong. without crying. I know. Thank you. <laughs> Inspired. Um, anything else that you guys want to share about this topic? I don't know. I mean, I just, like, would encourage anyone to go out and, like, yes, watch, like, performances, but I, like, read Carrie Fisher's books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, they are, she was an incredible writer, and if you're like, oh, I'm so sorry about her passing away, I feel like you can read her books and, like, she's still alive. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, in a way, you get to still, like, experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's, I don't know, so great about having women writers and women creators you know what I mean that's different from acting yeah like getting to read a woman's words is like a very exciting process mm-hmm. yeah I, lo- I read postcards from the edge when I was like way too young to understand <laughs> <laughs> I read wishful, wishful drinking yeah when I was like and 12. I remember being like what? <laughs> like I was just really confused I but... read them at an appropriate age and they were great <laughs> <laughs> I should go, go back, back. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now to go in a completely different direction we have a really funny lady problem from an, the anonymous person that I know but I will not share who she is Hi, ladies. I have a strange lady problem to report. My boyfriend has a new catchphrase, and it goes like this, get fucked. And that's more so in the general sense. I'll give you an example. So I told him I had to wake up at 7.30 this morning, and he, his immediate response was, oh, get fucked. I've addressed this with him before and I've asked him, you know, if there's maybe a more appropriate catchphrase to have. And, of course, his response was, get fucked. So now I don't really know what to do. Is that really the solution? Should I get fucked? 
I would love to hear from you. Thanks. (laughs) Well, anonymous friend. Uh, First of all, I just think this is so funny. But I I agree that's probably not the most, like, palatable catchphrase for daily life. I just, like, yeah, I can't handle a man who wants to get fucked. (laughs) That's it. It's over. I I just want to know, like, is it it necessary to have a catchphrase? (laughs) That is exactly what I was saying. Like, we were like, oh, like, what about replacement phrases? And I was like, what about infinite silence? Yeah. Yeah. Or, like, what about when she says, like, I have to get up at 7.30? You just reply, like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's really awful for you. Yeah, like, that sucks. Yeah, the catchphrase thing, I think maybe catchphrase is the, I do know this person, this man, too. And I think it's, like, more of, like, an ironic catchphrase, if that makes sense. That's worse, though. I I think maybe it's terrible. You're like, no, unacceptable. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so what are some, like, feminist lady problems catchphrases be? If he has to have a catchphrase, what could it be? We, I suggested get fucked with consent. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me open that jar for you. Like Perfect. I don't even know. Smash that patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? Would you, do you need anything right now? That's what you should just ask at all times. Yeah, do you need anything yeah. right now? <laughs> can I get you a mitol? <laughs> what can I be giving to you? Right. Yeah. A, I have to get up at seven thirty. Do you need anything right now? Do you need anything right now? <laughs> right. That's a it great works. response. Yes. Yeah. Okay, if that's your catchphrase, then I would find yeah. what catchphrase is. Tao, you said this relates to your New Year's resolution. Oh, right, because my, my New Year's resolution is to literally get fucked more. Just like more <laughs> sex 2017. That's good. All right. I think we've solved this lady problem. I hope that that was helpful to you, anonymous friend of mine. Uh, and if you want to call and leave us a lady problem, please call us at 205-677-5239. That's 205-677-LADY. You can also tweet us at at LadyProblemsPod. And, and literally anything constitutes lady problem, as you can see. Uh, if someone keeps telling you to get fucked, we want to hear about it. Erin, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, and thank you. What can our what can our listeners do to help help this cause of getting the show renewed? Um, I think you know there is a petition online to save Good Girls Revolt, which you can find on Twitter. Um, and Instagram. I'm terrible with social media, so I can't tell you where. Um, There's also a hashtag. Yeah. Hashtag save good girls revolt. Yeah. Yes. Hashtag save good girls revolt. Um, I think basically just make your voices heard and feel free to tweet at all the networks that you like and be like, hey, don't be dicks like Amazon and pick up this show. Yes. And also just go watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Go watch it and like try, you know, hopefully get inspired by it. Also maybe pick up the it. book. Yeah, yeah. The book is the book is amazing. It is like, like she's a journalist, too. and it is some facts, but yeah. like in the most amazing way. Like it was one of those where I was like, "This is an amazing story," and also I feel smarter for having read it. All right, I'm gonna read the book. I haven't even read it yet. Yeah, yeah good I'm sale. A... Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And thank you, Teo, for being my lovely co-host on a bi-weekly basis. I thank- love you. <laughs> thank you so much, Rachel. So kind. <laughs> That's it for Lady Problems. See you guys next week. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Podcasts.